as we go, I just want to remind you that I've been working hard to emphasize more of a narrative or a story, a true story, than propositions. Okay, so a proposition is something like humans are sinful or humans are racist or something like that. that that's a proposition and propositions are needed but I think if we only speak in terms of proposition, then we only are communicating to one aspect of our being, and that's really just our, our cognitive capacity. And on that level, we, we then are just dealing with the battle of ideas, and sadly, most of us don't think very carefully, okay? We, we just hear something, and we have a gut reaction to a proposition, and we don't slow down to hear out the other, the other side, and they don't slow down to hear us. And so really those arguments over propositions, I think are unhelpful. This way of arguing and talking worked really well in the 1800s and on during this period of rationalism, this enlightenment time where, where this, this world of ideas where you're engaging on this intellectual level alone was really helpful. But as we can see just about anywhere, this, we, there's been a move from this rationalism, scientific way of talking and thinking. Now, we still pledge allegiance to science at times because we'll talk about that. You'll hear that in the news. But when it comes down to what people actually do, this rationalistic proposition, scientific way of talking and thinking is gone. So let me give you an example. I made the mistake of going on the Twitter on Twitter yesterday and, and sort of scrolling through what's going on in, on in the world. And if, if we're going to talk in terms of identity politics, which is bad, but that's just what is, um, those who are inclined to vote Democratic are going to be inclined to talk about the science of COVID and social distancing and masks, okay? This is, this is wrong that it, it's happening and it's politicized, but it, it, it is what it is. And, and Republicans maybe are more inclined to ignore the, the data in masks and social distancing, okay? That's stereotypical. It's based on identity politics, and that's a bad way to think. But for the sake of illustration, roll with it. What happened yesterday after news outlets declared that Joseph Biden is president-elect are mass gatherings of Democrats who voted for Joseph Biden huddled together, thousands of people in small confined spaces with no thought for social distancing because the, the rationalistic propositions about COVID and, and the danger is gone because there's been an affection that's been drawn on based on this narrative of, of one president who's evil being removed and another president who will be good being set up. And so this narrative draws out and elicits a kind of response that transcends any proposition that anyone would have, would have ever held to prior to that moment, okay? Whether that's right or wrong, I, I don't care really, but what I'm trying to show and demonstrate to you is that narrative, the, the power of story, has a power that's stronger than the power of a proposition, okay? It, it draws something out of us. Now, now, this makes sense when we read the New Testament and, and we talk about sanctification. Yesterday, I had the opportunity to uh, talk with a, a, a systematic theologian about sanctification for some time, and, and he talked about the way the Bible works from head to heart to action, 
Okay, so, so there's this teaching on who you are. You know, there, there are these indicatives and, and, and it's supposed to work through as you cognitively process and then it hits your affections and that drives you to move because your, your affections drive you to move far more than any head knowledge proposition drives you to move. Okay, so another illustration. You know that a penny saved is a penny earned. And so if, if you keep saving money, you're going to grow in your, in your wealth. But when you walk by, you know, some really good advertising, your affections are moved to act in the opposite way of what you know, and you buy something totally pointless and unneeded. Okay, so I think we get this. And, and I think that it is true that very often it works from our cognitive understanding and processing to our affections, to our action. But what stories do are they almost bypass the cognitive temporarily and they grab us at the core of who we are and propel us to move on to do something. And that's what the Bible does from the very beginning. Now, that's not to say that we shouldn't use our minds and think about these things. We need to, but stories and true stories in particular grab the core of who we are and, and they act as a catalyst for action. So what I've been trying to do is allow you to soak in the first story the true story that God gave us about who we are, because I think that's going to drive us in the right direction. And as we're moving, we need to be thinking and processing, but we're going to do that better because we'll have the right instincts and the right impulses because of where we've been drawn by the story. All right, does this make sense? Okay, this may be a little bit of a different way of teaching about these things or talking about them. I think it's a way that fits the way we do everything in life. You, you, those of us, I'll say you, those of us, I watched a movie yesterday. Those of us who watch movies do this without realizing it. We, we hear a story and we have a thousand impulse responses of what's right and wrong and who we should be in response to these things that bypass the, the very careful cognitive propositional level of thinking. And I think that's actually what God is intending to happen to us, the effect that he wants this text to happen on us. And so while we go through this, I'll certainly in this week give some responses that we should have and make some propositions. But this week, I just want you to soak in the story and be growing in the right impulses is we're shown things more than we're told things. Okay, so, so a good story will show you something. It doesn't necessarily tell you something. We're expected to have the moral impulses that we can, when we see something, distinguish between right and wrong. That's only going to happen if you're, if you're reading the Pentateuch, all right? So if, you're, if you don't know the Pentateuch, I would exhort you this week to read Genesis. And then next week, Exodus. And the week after that, Leviticus. And the week after that, Numbers. And the week after that, Deuteronomy. And, and know the Pentateuch, because we're saying that Moses wrote this thing to a people who experienced the Pentateuch. All right? So, so if you don't know these things, you're not going to see clearly. You're, you're going to be like Eve, who looked at the fruit of the tree and saw and perceived in a certain way and then acted incorrectly. You need to be soaked in the Pentateuch, and, and we're starting that here. All right? That way, when you look at the world and when you are told a story or given a narrative, you're going to be able to see if what they're showing is true or right or wrong. 
any questions then on what I've talked about here or anything we've covered up to this point before I essentially just walk us through Genesis 2 and 3 to give us this narrative foundation and in, in sort of a, um, an Epsom bath soak time in the, in the Bible. Yeah, that, that's a good point. This, that's how Jesus taught. And, and part of that is because he's in a particular culture where, where that's how people are taught. Perhaps if he came during the peak of rationalism, he would have come with a, you know, 95 theses or, or something like that. But, but he came with a bunch of parables, right? Good. Okay. As we look at chapter two here, I want to emphasize the covenant relationship that is created and given between God and humanity, and then subsequently between the, the man, Ish, and the woman, Isha. Okay, these are the two words. I'm saying them so you get the, the closeness in, in the sameness of who these individuals are. We got one view of this in Genesis 1, and 27, where God made the earthlings in his image, male and female. He created them. All right, but now we're going to get this close angle perspective. And as we look, there's been a shift from references to God as simply God, Elohim, to in chapter two, Elohim, Yahweh. Yahweh being this covenantal name of God. You'll find it in, in your English translation in all caps, Lord. The only time in chapters two and three where we don't have Elohim, Yahweh, is in a discussion between the woman and the serpent. And what that's going to signal to us is that the covenantal relationship between God and humanity is in jeopardy because the covenantal name seems to be forgotten. So, so in Exodus, it's made clear this Yahweh name is, is this covenantal relational that you will know me sort of interaction. Well, when that, when that gets... Um, cut out when we've become so familiar with hearing Lord God, Elohim Yahweh, we're, we're going to sense something, something is wrong. But let me just read through this, and I'll just kind of give a, a commentary as we read here. These are the records, this is starting in verse 4 of chapter 2, these are the records of the heavens and the earth concerning their creation. At the time that the Lord God made the heaven or the earth and the heavens, no shrub of the field had yet grown on the land and no plant of the field had yet sprouted for the Lord God had not made it rain on the land and there was no man to work the ground, but mist would come up from the earth and water all the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man out of the dust from the ground and breathed the breath of life into his nostrils and the man became a living being. So, so here we have this, this articulation of creation where God is forming man out of the dust from the ground. And the, the verb that's used there is a verb that is used with respect to potters molding clay or something like that. When we get to the formation of the woman, it's going to be a different verb. And it's going to be a verb that emphasizes building. 
Okay, so there are these two different verbs that are used to talk about the creation of man, ish, in, in the creation of woman, isha. And, and I just want to note right now that I think we, we should be careful about reading too much into changes in verbs because there may just be a, a stylistic color added like we would do in our conversations. But I think it is right to note that even from the very beginning, this first account, there's a difference in the way that God made men and women, okay? I don't know how far we should take that, but, but I want to say that, that God formed as a potter Adam, the man from the dust, and later he's going to build the woman from the side of the man. And, and we'll get there, but we, we often translate that rib of the man. Side is better, okay? That, so don't, don't imagine that there's this, just a rib that's carefully surgically removed or something. You're, you're reading it the wrong way. Just take it as the side of the man, this, this closeness of who he is, such that she's bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh. But I, I just want to point out that I think that Moses may be emphasizing that men and women are different. And, and that doesn't mean that they aren't equally made by God or equally bearers of his image or something like that. In fact, as we'll come to see, if, if we took enough time, I think we could develop a theology of the body, the way that God forms and builds men and women differently, such that we are going to emphasize different aspects of what it means to exercise dominion over the earth and subdue it and be fruitful and multiply. Now to all of us, this should just be obvious that in the roles of being fruitful and multiply and exercising dominion and subduing the earth, the way that God made men and women means that there will be different emphases in the way that they carry out these responsibilities. If we say something like this, Anywhere else, if I, if I you know, had a post at the University of Michigan teaching ancient Near Eastern history or something, and I said that, I think I'd be fired probably. But we just have to be able to affirm that God made men and women differently. And so as we start to talk about this theological anthropology, you know, what, what we believe about man from the Bible, that there's a distinction between men and women and that we only really have record of a creation of a male and a female. So as we start to hear these ideas about what it means to be human and gender identity and these sort of things, I think that the biblical vantage point we're given here is that humans have a gender that corresponds to their sexuality. Okay, their biological sexual features. And, and while gender, I want to say, is fluid in one way, and, and that is that across cultures there are different expressions of, of masculinity and different expressions of femininity that are well within this correlation between male biology and gender and female biology and gender. So, for example, uh, Jesus was clothed in, in what we might look at as a dress, okay? If we saw a man walking around in that, we'd think maybe something's wrong there. Um, when, when I was in high school, 
we weren't allowed to wear pink shirts as men, you know, now you can sort of do that. And there's no like overthrowing of, of gender stereotypes or something like that. So in that way, gender can be, ex there's, there's a margin of um, expression in expressing gender, but gender and sex correspond to one another such that we can't determine I have a gender that's opposite of what my biological body is nor can we conceive of something called like pansexuality or pangender as, you know, there's just this spectrum that we're all on. Instead, we have God forming the man and he's going to build the woman. And these are the categories that we have, whether we like it or not. Now, we want to recognize that, as we'll see in this broken world, we can have something of an identity crisis particularly when we are, are worshiping the wrong things and, and when we come from a culture and society that worships the wrong things because the way that God made us is, is reflections of him is such that we become like what we worship. And, and when we start worshiping gods of our own making that look like us or look like what we want to look like, we, we start to sense a, a discontinuity between what we are biologically and who we are emotionally, okay? And, and this, again, is another reason why we're focusing on narrative is because people chuck science and biology to the side in favor of the true self or the, the inner feelings, okay? And so, so these narratives need to grip us and pull us in a different direction. Moving on then, the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he placed man the man he had formed, the Lord God caused to grow out of the ground every tree pleasing in appearance and good for food, including the tree of life in the middle of the garden, as well as the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Okay, let, let me pause here and say that we, we can't spend time on this, but I, I think we're to understand the garden as something of a temple. Okay, the, the way that the temple is talked about later on and, and the responsibilities that will be given to man are the same priest-like responsibilities. I, I think we need to understand the garden as a temple where God's presence is intended to dwell with, with people. Okay, we'll, we'll get this later on, but, but God with his people, this fits the ancient Near Eastern ideas of very often these gods would create something so that they could then go and dwell in it. And I think that's a picture here as we get to the, the Sabbath rest of God on day seven. He's created this garden temple where he will rest, where his presence will abide with people. Can't argue for that at length here. You don't have to hold to that to, to you know, track with everything else I'm saying. But I think we're intended, in, in even based on the images that are put into the temple, um, as you read these things, as you read the Pentateuch over the next month, as I, I know you all will, you'll, I think you'll start to get some connection points here. But it is very evident that God intends to dwell and to have a relational presence with his creation in the garden. And we get this sense later on in, in Genesis 3 when there's this language of the, the presence of God walking in, in the garden, okay? We, we just, I think, understand this intuitively. But then when we come to the tree of life in the middle of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, we start to get a little bit confused. 
again, I can't argue for this at length here because we're, we've got to keep moving, but I want to suggest that these trees don't have the property of life and the property of the knowledge of good and evil such that if you eat the tr something from the tree, you're now vibrantly living. And if you eat something from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you now have you know, a knowledge of good and evil. I, I think what's going on here is that these trees represent something of a meeting place of God and his people, and, and God is the source of life, and God is the determiner of good and evil, and as his people dwell with him, they grow to flourish in these things, all right? And this is why I think when we get to the, the garden and the restriction on eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, I, I'm looking at this as a place where Adam and Eve were to enjoy a meal in the covenant presence of God, similar to the way that Moses and the elders in, in Exodus enjoyed a meal in the presence of their covenant God. Okay, I, I think that's what's going on here. So the, the restriction is not that you will never eat from this tree, but that this is the place where we will commune together in our coven, covenantal meal with one another such that eating it of this tree apart from the presence of Yahweh with you is essentially saying we no longer need the Lord of the covenant. We are the ones who have full autonomy. We are not dependent on the Lord of the covenant. We don't need him. This is our place. So this temple garden, that's God's place. It's now our place and, and we own every piece of it. I, I think that's what's going on here. I, I don't think that there's fruit that gives you greater knowledge of good and evil. This is immediately clear when we have to say that Adam and Eve knew they were doing evil when they, when they listened to the serpent and ate of the tree. So, so they have knowledge of good and evil. So it's not as if they, they didn't have knowledge of this. But prior to breaking that covenant obligation, they were in submission to the covenant Lord and looked to him as the one who defines what's right and wrong. Uh, not that they don't know what's right and wrong or something like that. But let's, let's keep moving on here. Um, verses 10 through 14 are important, but not for what we're talking about here, just more description of the garden. Verse 15, the Lord God took the man and placed him in the Garden of Eden to work it and watch over it. It could be rendered to guard and to keep it. The, the only time that language again appears together is in reference to the priests who are, who are working and serving in the temple. Verse 16, and the Lord God commanded the man. So here I think are the covenantal obligations and, and the covenantal blessings. You are free to eat from any tree of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for on the day you eat from it, you will certainly die. And, and the way that this is phrased is God is the one who's going to enact this judgment. Later as we read through Exodus, there, there are instances where if someone does something, they ought to be put to death, where human agents are to exercise this. But this death curse is, is really something that will be exercised by God. Now, we need to, from this moment on, understand that in the ancient world, and I think in our world, death is conceived of in more terms than just the death of a physical body. There are all kinds of death. And, and so a, a, a couple who can't have children, that's seen as a kind of death. 
And so it's almost viewed as a resurrection, a, a coming to life when that couple can now have children. So, so death is, is thought of more broadly, um, and, and we need to have that idea in here, but certainly I think it includes um, uh, a pronouncement or a judgment of a death penalty in the way we would think of it. So we have these words that are uttered to the man. The, wo- the woman is not in existence yet, so the man hears the word of God, and, and there's this covenantal idea here. Now, I want to push back against those who would argue that God is being nefarious and vindictive and, and kind of a bad guy by putting a temptation in the garden for them. Some people say God arbitrarily stuck this thing in there to try to trip Adam and Eve up. Um, I, I don't think that's the right way to look at it. Um, Instead, I want us to understand this is covenantal terminology that has certain obligations and restrictions, but there are obligations and restrictions that go beyond the stated obligations and restrictions. We all know this by experience in this room in, in a covenant of marriage. You, you, t- you make certain covenant obligations in your vows, and in, in nowadays it's sort of popular to write your own vows, but you make those obligations, but there are, there are obligations you have to your spouse that extends beyond the words that were uttered there, okay? And, and same thing with the restrictions of what you shouldn't do that extend beyond the precise words uttered there. And w- so when we read this, I want to suggest that there were a lot of things that the man was not permitted to do besides eating from this tree. For instance, was the man permitted to kill the woman? No. There there are all sorts of things that we just look at this story and say, he wasn't permitted to do this. And so what we should not read is that there is a God who has stuck something in the garden and is, is being selfish and not letting Adam do this one thing. No, there are lots of things the man couldn't do, and it makes sense that there would be things he couldn't do because he is not the God. He's not the creator. He, he is instead the, the image of the God who serves. Okay, so then the Lord God said to him, it's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper corresponding to him. Um, a brief note on this word helper, um, azar, it's not a diminutive um, slave sort of an idea, okay? It's actually an honorable sort of thing. God is referenced in these terms to his people. There are, there are a couple of texts in scripture that talk about a stronger party actually helping another weaker party with this azar language. I, I think that it's, um, and this is speculation again here, a lot of this is because we're, we're interpreting what we see and we're not being told directly. But I think this word helper azar is really closely related and even drawn from this word azar, which has this idea of meaning to save from death or to deliver. So azar, to deliver, to save from death, azar, helper. And and I think that we're getting a hint from from the author as he's telling a good story here in, in a true story that this woman is supposed to have a role of deliverance from death for the man and in, in to help. And what this is signaling is that there's just been a command that if you do this, you're going to die. It's not good that you're alone. And this is the first time God looked at something and said, it's not good. I, I need to give you an azar, a helper, and, and a deliverer from death. 
Okay, so then Adam names all the animals. Naming is sort of an exercise of dominion, a, a, an expression of authority. So he's doing what he's supposed to. And, and throughout this process, there's no helper, no azar, who is found corresponding to him. So the Lord God, verse 21, caused a deep sleep to come over the man, and he slept. Now, you've got to think of this in, in terms of the Pentateuch, as I suggested already. Abraham is going to be put into the same deep sleep, uh, immediately preceding a covenantal um, formation with God. Okay, so keep that in mind. What we're about to encounter then um, from, these, from, from this description is there's about to be something covenantal that's formed. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to come over the man and he slept. God took one of his ribs and closed the flesh at that place. And, and that's really, he just took from his side and, and closed the flesh. Then the Lord God made the flesh he had taken from the man into a woman and brought her to the man. And so the Lord made, he built is sort of the idea he fashioned here from the man, a woman. So man has his origin in dust. Woman has her origin in man. And, and this is why later on, as we get to the consequences for this breaking of the covenant, it ends with man, you are made from dust, from dust you'll return. And, and we might wonder, how come something similar isn't said to the woman? Well, she's taken from the man, you know, so, so there's this idea of this is, a, this is what's going to happen. You're, you both will die. You'll, you'll go to your, this, this dust-like state. Also keep in, in mind here, um, man was made from the dust. Keep that in mind for when we talk about the serpent's um, status down the road, okay? So then God made the woman. He brought her to the man, and the man said, this one at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This one will be called woman or isha because she was taken from man, ish, right? So we, we have these sort of ideas. They're, they're very closely connected. And I pointed out last week that covenants make people who aren't family like family. Well, this is about as family as you can get, all right? You're, you're the same individual. And then verse 24, he gives this explanation. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife or clings to his wife and they become one flesh. Um, the, there's this covenantal, there's this rightness of them coming together and being a new unit together in covenant faithfulness to one another. And then verse 25 both the man and his wife were naked, yet felt no shame. Now, this is certainly speaking to physical nakedness, but I think larger, it's speaking to the idea of intimacy. There's perfect intimacy and vulnerability without fear or shame. Okay, that, that's how humans were intended to relate, is with, with being able to be fully vulnerable and vo fully confident in the others ability and, and faithfulness to exercise steadfast love despite the vulnerability. Okay, so, so certainly physical nakedness, but I think extending beyond that. And, and actually, that's, that's what we need to keep in mind as, as we relate to other humans. You know, there, there's this sense of we, we become vulnerable in, in this sexual relationship. And, and as we talk about our theological anthropology and how humans are meant to relate, a society that encourages a vulnerability uh, that's, that's expressed most clearly through a sexual relationship without covenant faithfulness and steadfast love is a society that will reap the fruit of a broken covenant that we're about to see. 
Okay, so so a society that pushes that sort of engagement, vulnerability without covenant faithfulness and steadfast love is setting themselves up to wherever that extends to reap the fruit of a broken covenant. Okay, and, and that's why we want to emphasize in the church the, the sacred calling of marriage and pursue covenant faithfulness to our spouses with one another because that leads to flourishing where, where covenant unfaithfulness leads to brokenness, as we'll start to see. All right? Final note on chapter two, and then we'll spend about five minutes getting into chapter three. Um, this, this word naked is really interesting, and I'm thankful for those friends in, in classes that are forcing me to um, keep reading in, in Hebrew because this, this word naked is a room, and very soon we're going to encounter a serpent who in, in our translation is described as cunning or crafty, and it's a Rome, a room or Rome. Okay, so there, there's this literary fusing, but what we're going to see in, in the last verse of chapter two and the first verse of chapter three, and then later when Adam and Eve, the man and the woman, confessed to be naked and, and being afraid, we're going to start to see that though they were made in the image of God and to be like God, they're described here in a way that makes us wonder, are they more like the serpent than like God? Okay, so there's this, this narrative connection, but I think it brings to mind this description of the man and the woman that, that connects them to who they're going to become like as they stop gazing on God and, and maintaining covenant faithfulness with him. Okay, all right, chapter three, verse one. We've got a few minutes here, and, and I want to at least get, get through the breaking of the covenant. Now, the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. You have to pause there. This, this is a riddle. This is complicated. We don't know much about the serpent, but what we are given are, are a couple of features. One, the origin of the serpent and, and a characteristic of the serpent. So the serpent is cunning or crafty. Everywhere else in the Old Testament that this is used, it's actually a positive thing in, in the Proverbs, this, this word, but he's crafty. He's, he's cunning. Um, and, and then we're told that he's of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. So he's made by God. And I think what's going on here is, is a uh, demolishing of the idea that there's a good power and an evil power that are equal and constantly pulling against one another, or that the serpent is in some way a deity, is a rival to Yahweh and an equal in power or authority to him. No, it's a created being. Now, how does a created being that's good become bad? That, that's a question that, that we don't have the answer to. And if, if you read Paradise Lost, more than you read the Bible, you're going to have a, a really, you know, convincing theory about how Satan came to be. Um, but if you read the Bible, it's really just not as clear as you want it to be. I, I hate to say it's, it's a bit of a riddle. It's a bit of a mystery. And um, we're, we're doing this Harry Potter thing in a few weeks. And, and I think it, it, Rowling does a really good thing here where Voldemort this, uh, the, the Lord of Death here is, uh, his, his name as a child is Tom Marvolo Riddle. And you, over and over through this series, we're wondering, how did he become 
Voldemort. How, how did he become awful? And it is a bit of a riddle. This question of evil is a bit of a riddle, but we're told from the very beginning that evil is not equal to God in good. There's, there's not this, you know, this um, yin and yang sort of balance of good and bad in the evil that, that always has to remain equal or something like that. Instead, this is a created being. And what instructions do Adam and Eve, the man and the woman, have with respect to creative beings, to exercise dominion and subdue. So when you come across a particularly crafty and cunning created being, particularly one, as we hear later on, who will call into question the covenant faithfulness and and goodness of Yahweh, the response ought to be, we're exercising dominion over you, serpent. We're, We're going to guard and keep the garden. You're in the garden in the temple presence of God, and in your speaking against him, you need to be removed from the garden. That's what covenant faithfulness would, would have demanded. That, that's not what we're going to see. Furthermore, we're going to see a, a problem with the man and the woman because the woman was not yet formed or built when God spoke to the man these covenantal obligations. And so we're left to assume that the man had the responsibility to then communicate that word of God to the woman. And and apparently he did. And and sometimes we read when the woman says, we're not even supposed to touch this fruit is adding to God's word. I don't think we should think about it that way. I think as we read Exodus, these Israelites are not even supposed to touch the mountain of the Lord or else they're going to be put to death. So I think she's just speaking in the strongest of terms initially that this is prohibited from us. But, but the man, apparently, as we're, we'll see next week, is right next to her. And, and I think that guy who heard the covenantal obligations and stipulations directly from the Lord, in particular, is given then, in that moment, in this moment of instructions, the responsibility to guard and keep the garden, should have stomped on the head of the snake and, and sent him slithering away. Okay, That's what covenant faithfulness should have demanded. And, and we're going to have to stop here, but it's setting up this framework for understanding what our problem is. I want to give one final word so that way I don't spend any time on it next week, is if, if you're like me, you read little kids' Bible storybooks with pictures, and, and when Satan or the serpent is, is tempting the woman and the man, he's standing up on legs, and he kind of looks like a chameleon, and then later there's this curse, on your belly you will go, and dust you will eat the rest of your life. Don't think of it that way. That's silly. And and then you're being forced to defend something the Bible doesn't actually articulate. That language of of going on your belly and eating dust is repeated in Isaiah and Micah. And it's just this, you're going to be the groveliest and, and you're never going to arise above any of these wild animals. You thought you were the most cunning of all the wild animals. Well, now you are going to be, you're going to be eating dust. Now, it's not literally eating dust as a meal, okay? But he's saying, man was taken from dust. You tried to overthrow man and churn him against me. Well, you're, you're going back to what man is going to become, and you're going to grovel in the death of humanity forever. And, and that's going to picture what happens to the serpent and his seed.